This show is supported by the BS Podcast Network. They got tons of great content over there. Please go check them out. In addition, sometimes I say things on this show that sounds like medical advice. I can tell you right now it's not. If you want medical advice, go talk to your doctor, not me. By supporting this show, you're supporting a cause. That cause is making science accessible for everyone. Thank you for your support. Welcome back to Basically Science. Can you imagine how difficult it must be to have a food allergy? I mean, I don't personally have one, so I wouldn't really know what it's like. Um, But in this episode, we're going to break down what exactly is an allergy, what is a cause, and how it's treated. We have a degree in integrative sciences, which is specifically designed to provide an interdisciplinary education of both physical and life science. We use this education to help you understand where science meets the world around us. If you stick around to the end of this episode, I will share why EpiPens work. By the end of this episode, you should have an understanding of the, fun- of the fundamentals of the immune system, anaphylaxis, and how EpiPens work. Parker, I want you to imagine this, okay? You are 11 years old, and you're going to go to the beach because your family doesn't typically go to the beach, so this is going to be a new, exciting experience for you. And to celebrate, your family indulges at a crab shack where there's more crabs than you could ever possibly eat. And as always, they're perfectly cooked, buttery, well-seasoned, and you're loving it. You're having the time of your life. And then all of a sudden you feel a slight tingling in your throat. Your heart begins racing and you feel this surge rushing through your body almost as if it's like an anxiety. You start breathing faster and you feel like you can't catch a breath. Your tongue swells making breathing even worse. Your parents quickly realize what's happening and they call 911. And you end up going to the hospital for several hours but manage to come out alive. Do you know what happened to you? Yes. Uh, the accumulation of some dire decisions that an 11 year old has to make uh, is, is totally now it is the the interaction between how my body is responding to, to this food that I just enjoyed very much. You're right. You had a, you had a allergic reaction, uh, and the most severe case called anaphylaxis. So, uh, while you were in the hospital, you were likely treated with a variety of medications, but we're going to get into some of those in a little bit. The system that was acting in that case was the immune system, which is a complex protection mechanism that is part of your body. And the immune system is multifaceted. It's an organization of proteins, cells, tissues, and without it, quite frankly, our bodies would be vulnerable to attack from outside invaders, known as uh, com- known commonly as foreign bodies or in the immunology world, antigens. To first understand allergic reactions or anaphylaxis, we have to start by understanding the basics of the immune system. So let's first talk about the origin tissues of the immune system. And there are many types uh, of cells in the body that are immune system related. These cells can be categorized in several different ways. And one of the large categories is white blood cells. 
Do you know where you can find white blood cells? Well, it have to be, have to be in the blood. Right, because there's no way in the world that question would ever stump you. Right? Yes, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> just for just for reference, everyone, uh, I had asked this question to Parker in a draft recording prior to this, and uh, well, to be quite frank, he had no idea. <laughs> yeah. I went I went uh, X Games mode on the question. Yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has to be, you know, because of this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but white blood cells are also go by another name. They go by another name called leukocytes. Uh, can you think of anything that reminds you of the word leukocytes or does it ring a bell? Yes, most, most notably uh, in leukemia. Absolutely. So leukemia is a cancer of the white blood cells. Um, but white blood cells, they can be stored in the thymus, which is a, a gland in between your heart and lungs. Uh, it can be stored, they can be stored in the spleen, um, they are made in the bone marrow, and they also exist in the lymph nodes as well as floating around in your blood. Leukocytes can be further classified into phagocytes and lymphocytes. So we're going to start to kind of get into the different cell types here, and I want you to try and stick with me because although it seems complex, uh, it, it's really important if you want to understand anything about the immune system. Uh, Phagocytes, which is like that further classification of leukocytes, phagocytes absorb and break down other cells. They're, they're eater cells. They eat other th cells and uh, break them down. And there's a couple different types. One is going to be a neutrophil, and they commonly tend to attack bacteria. Uh, another one is a monocyte. They're the largest, and they do a bunch of, a bunch of different things. The third, which is probably one of the most popular, are macrophages. Macrophages patrol for pathogens, and they also remove dead or dying cells. And that could be like your own cells that are dead and dying. And then there's mast cells, which help with healing as well as pathogen defense. Okay, so those are four types of phagocytes. Remember, phagocytes are the ones that are going to absorb and break down cells. Lymphocytes, on the other hand, help recognize and remember foreign bodies. There are two types. B lymphocytes, which produce antibodies and they alert T cells. And T lymphocytes, or T cells, and they destroy compromised cells and recruit other leukocytes. There's two major types of T cells, helper T cells, which coordinate the immune response by recru recruiting cells and stimulating antibody production. And then there's killer T cells, which kill compromised cells. Okay, so that's kind of like the basics of, uh, you know, the basic components, some of the basic compo components of the immune system. Do you have any questions about that? No, it's just like, um, I guess it's sort of like those are the key players in, in, right. in the process when you're talking about something happening to the body, something abnormal uh, like anaphylaxis, right. yeah? And those are going to be the, uh, I guess, the players that are active. Does that make sense? They are alive. They are doing things. They are metabolizing just like any other living cell. The other players, such as antibodies and antigens, they typically are not 
alive. I mean, bacteria are alive, so that's different. Viruses, it's questionable, but they're typically considered to be not alive. Uh, you know, other things such as like proteins, that's what I'm considering non-active players in the immune system because they're just as important. And we're going to kind of get into a little bit of those right now. So when an antigen enters the body, this is what occurs, okay? This is the immune response. So let's assume this is a new, never-before-seen antigen. The antigen is going to first be recognized by a B lymphocyte, which will then learn uh, the antigen and produce a marker protein that is specific to that antigen, and that is called an antibody. Antibodies are a part of uh, a family of chemicals called immunoglobulins. They are titled Ig, and then a letter such as A, B, C, E, whatever, uh, afterwards. So an example would be I, G, E. Different immunoglobulins do different things. These B lymphocytes then release the new antibody to bind to the antigen, creating what we call an immunocomplex. Okay, so that's an antibody and an antigen. Because the antibody is now bound, it can be recognized by a T cell. The helper T cells typically recognize it and they help recruit the appropriate leukocytes in the killer T cells as needed to uh, either to, to essentially deal with the uh, antigen. Any variation in this process, any variation in the cells that we listed before, fall into the category of an immune system disorder. And there's three main types of immune system disorders. However, we're only going to focus on one of those, and that is called a hypersensitivity. I only chose to focus on one of those because this is pretty complex as it is, and I really don't want to waste time providing poor surface level uh, explanations to you know, a broad array of the immune system, and I'd rather kind of just like focus in on one topic. So we're going to call that a, a hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivities can, again, be categorized into four different types. And again, we're only going to be focusing on type 1, which in its most severe state can lead to anaphylaxis. In a type 1 hypersensitivity, the body is exposed to a new antigen, just as we described above. The body responds to it as it typically does. It gets analyzed and labeled as either a threat or no threat. In food allergies, specific particles from the food we get, uh, sorry, in food allergies, specific particles from the food get labeled as a threat. Okay, and this causes the body to react to it as if it was a pathogen, triggering a vast immune response. Now. Typically, you do not have an allergic reaction on your first exposure. That is kind of interesting. It is. That is pretty – that I am, had no idea of. Yeah. Do you think you could maybe put together why that's the case? Oh, man. Um, so using the example of – eating crabs and having having sure. that allergic reaction. Mm. 
think, I think about it would, kind of yeah. how the immune system reacts to new things. What what it, what was the process yeah. I just explained? So I think maybe it it is that the immune system isn't necessarily tuned yet to sort of deal with that the introduction of 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 an antigen or or a pathogen. Um, sure. I so, mean, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't know how to react to something it's never seen before. Right. Okay, and right? that makes sense. Yeah. So, we don't really know. The immune system doesn't really know if it's going to be a threat or it's not. Like it's kind of hard to tell until it has that first interaction. Sure. Sure, sure. So, uh severe allergies, you can uh react on the second time you're exposed to it sometimes it's years and years later and they're like acquired allergies even after uh sort of like sporadic exposure yeah i mean um for example uh i grew up with cats love them right i've i've lived with a cat my entire life love them love your cat me too when i go and visit other cats cats that are not like my own I I have allergies. Hmm. I never had a, an allergy to cats. Just started recently developing them. How about that? I knew someone in when I was working uh, as a research tech in a lab. I was working under a PhD student. She developed an allergy to rats simply through working with them. Yo! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> wow! Yeah. So like, she, I mean, we had to hold rats all the time to do our different tests we had to we had to shave them we had to do blood glucose levels all sorts of different stuff but um she if they scratched her arm uh you know with their little tiny claws it used to not bother her but after a while she would start to break out into like a rash wow and it would itch and stuff like you know if her research still involves involves that well, I know that she has since gotten her PhD and is off doing bigger and better things. Congratulations to to her. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um and uh I can't say that I had a part in that, but I think I I like to think I did. <laughs> I I think any data that I collected in my time, I think ended up getting thrown out. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> Cuz it was negligible. <laughs> Bare minimum acknowledgement section. Bare minimum. <laughs> right. Bare minimum. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bare, bare minimum. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so you don't develop the allergy on your first try because the immune system has to be exposed to it first, and then it can make a decision of whether it's a threat or it's not a threat. Now, in the case of like a seafood allergy or shellfish, shellfish allergy, such as crabs, um, when we are first exposed to it, most of us, Label that as not a threat, right? In people with a seafood allergy or a shellfish allergy, for some reason, that gets labeled as a threat. And what happens is uh, they their cells then get what we call primed. So at the next exposure, the cells are ready to go to release a response, And in people with allergies, that response is like 10 times exaggerated what it really should be. I see. And we don't know why. Well, now I know why why it occurs. It was just, it was that easy, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you're, I mean, you're a chemist 
And I think you're underestimating the amount of chemistry that is. Uh, it's, oh. Well, it's closer to biochemistry, but yeah, honestly, if you think about it, so uh, the immune system requires a lot of different hormone regulation as well as uh, protein folding, misfolding, mm-hmm. uh, protein marking, recognizing, div- uh, you know, producing, all of that stuff, all that protein stuff, that's biochemistry. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, when I walk by, you know, every time my roommate's in, in her immunology class, um, it, it is a beautiful sight of all, of all the chemistry that goes on uh, in that class. Because really, it is, um, the fundamental explanation is biochemical pathways right. and the process that happens between those pathways. So absolutely, yeah, right. I, I, I don't doubt it at all. So anyway, uh, back to where we were here. Um, So yeah, in food allergies, specific particles from the food that we eat get labeled as a threat. And like I said, it primes the cells for that next exposure. And this causes the body to react to it as if it were a pathogen pathogen triggering a vast immune response. And the pathway kind of goes like this. The allergen particle first gets identified and is bound to its specific antigen. For a type 1 allergic reaction, right, or a type 1 hypersensitivity, it has to be what we call IgE-mediated. The IgE-mediated just simply means that it's an IgE antibody that is being bound or being released or created. The immunocomplex is then presented to a mast cell and says, look, here, a new antigen. And this triggers a release of a bunch of chemicals, more than we could really talk about in the scope of this show. But one of the more prominent ones that you might recognize is called histamine. These chemicals cause the symptoms that we then typically associate with an allergic reaction. And this includes itching, redness, inflammation, so on. And most reactions can be controlled using a drug, which is an antihistamine drug. It binds to the histamine receptors to block them, reducing the allergic reaction. Do you know what drug I'm talking about? Yeah, I know the, I think I know the brand name, Benadryl. Um, I, I'm not sure if I can reproduce the more scientific name. Is it diphenhydramine? Oh my God. Yes, that's exactly it. I I was honestly, as you were sitting there contemplating, I'm like, there's no way he's going to remember this. Because the amount of people that recognize diphenhydramine for Benadryl, yeah, slim, very slim. The only reason why I know it is it's in my pharmaceutical scope at work, so like I, you. I, I can administer that drug. So you. I need to know what it does. Yeah, but like, I was stemming from you know the the two times uh, every two months I walk by Benadryl in the store or something. <laughs> yeah, so. I don't know, patting myself on the back here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So diphenhydramine is the, uh, I guess, primary example of an antihistamine drug. Um, I mean, there are other what we call non-drowsy drugs, uh, you know, like Claritin, Zyrtec, whatever. All those things kind of do essentially the same thing. And to be honest, I didn't look into them and how they are different as drugs because they treat non-allergic or non-type 1 allergic reactions right Right. they treat the ones that are going to cause anaphylaxis not the ones or they don't treat the ones that are going to cause anaphylaxis does that make sense yes okay yeah yeah 
Um, I don't know of anyone who has ever given Zyrtec as a uh, treatment for an allergy that might cause an allergic reaction. Um, I've never heard of it. It's always been Benadryl. So there is another drug that we can use. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So in more severe cases, uh, the reaction that I previously described uh, progresses to what we call anaphylaxis. And in anaphylaxis, a few things occur. Now, this is where I really kind of know what I'm talking about. This is on the, uh, this is happening and you need to fix it sort of side of things, right? So in anaphylaxis, shock occurs. Um, and we're going to talk about shock here in a second, but I'm going to continue with the list. Uh, so shock occurs, bronchoconstriction occurs, rash occurs, and airway swelling can occur. So do you, when I say shock, what do you think of? I, I think of, I, I suppose, the, the numbness to the intensity of something that has just happened to your body. Like... The thing that I've just seen is like so intensely like astounding and and scarring that you're just kind of like stunned um, but I'm more of I guess on a biochemical basis like within the body um, you're sort of unaware of of what has just happened even though you might you know see something you know um, you might not feel it I suppose so that's a common misconception. Your Enlighten definition, me. do it. Your definition is the common misconception do it, of please. what shock really is. So, from a medical standpoint, right? Shock is defined as hypoperfusion. 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 Are you able to break down that word? Hypo. I. I mean, that is like the the lack of, like yep. like hypoxia, uh, perfusion. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not really sure. So perfusion is what we call blood circulating through the body, right? Okay. So when an organ is receiving the appropriate uh, amount of blood to sustain life, it's considered appropriately perfused or it's receiving its perfusion. Okay. In hypoperfusion, the organ or the body or whatever is not receiving the appropriate amount of blood to continue life. I see. Okay. Okay. So shock is simply defined as hypoperfusion. Okay. Okay. There are a lot of different types of shock. There's cardiogenic shock, which has to do with the heart. There's a, a thing called distributive shock. There is, uh, you know, a, 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 an array of different types of shock. In anaphylaxis, it's kind of a distributive shock. Distributive shock is, uh, and all these different types of shock are just different ways to get to the same result, and that's that hypoperfusion. I see, right? okay. So in distributive shock, hypoperfusion occurs as a result of distribution of fluid. The fluid is not where it belongs. Okay? So... In anaphylaxis, you get this swelling, right? That swelling is called angioedema. 
Angioedema is just swelling of the vasculature. Okay. Okay. So in angioedema, when it occurs, there is more fluid there than there should be. So if we take blood, which is 92% water, right? And we pull fluid from it and we put it somewhere where it doesn't belong, such as in the airway or in the tongue or wherever angioedema is going to occur. There's no fluid for the rest of the body. Okay. Okay. And as a result, we're going to have uh, an onset of shock. Okay. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So, okay. So why... This might be too too broad of a question, but sure, um, sure. so why is it so widely misconstrued that shock is sort of that initial like what the hell you know? So because because of the English language, I think is the first <laughs> okay. to place yeah. the blame. You know, sure. I mean, having words that with you know multiple multiple meanings, shock being one of them. Okay. Um, you know, there's shock in the electrocution sense. There's shock in the uh, appalling excitement, like what just happened sense. Mm-hmm. There's shock in the medical sense, which we just talked about. You know, so I think that's part of the reason to blame. Okay. Second, sure. in order to understand shock, I mean, let's put it this way. The general public doesn't need to understand shock. In order to understand shock, you need to... Listen to the Basically Science podcast hosted by yourself and I. (laughs) Correct. So, like, the general public doesn't necessarily need to understand shock, right? The only reason why we're talking about it is because I think it's going to be of keen interest to certain people. Okay. And um, the reason why I say the general population doesn't need to know what shock is because, quite frankly, if they could recognize shock, unless they're a medical professional, there's nothing they can do to fix it. All right. There are two okay, major there's two major stages in shock. There's compensated and decompensated shock. In compensated shock, you're going to see the body reacting to the fact that it's in shock. Mm-hmm. Okay? You're going to see it do things that is going to try to reverse that shock, right? So if shock is hypoperfusion, there is likely an associated lack of blood pressure, right? Because that's going to not be, you know, if there's no blood pressure, how are we going to move the blood to perfuse the organs, right? Mm-hmm. So the body's going to increase the blood pressure in order to try and get perfusion to those I see. organs. Okay. You see what I'm saying? I see exactly what you're saying, yeah. What else allows blood to move around the body more? Increased heart rate, right? So yep. if we uh, increase the frequency that the heart pumps, we increase the overall volume and how fast and how efficiently it gets pushed through the body. Again, increasing perfusion, right? So these are all signs of what we call compensated shock. Compensated shock is where you want to find someone. And that's where you need to identify shock as a medical professional. And if you get to what we call decompensated shock, which is where the body's systems are overwhelmed, you're fucked. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yep. You're going to start seeing the opposite. You're going to start seeing extreme high, uh, extreme tachycardia. 
which is uh, a high heart rate, really high heart rate, right? If you think about it, the heart pushes the blood, which increases the pressure throughout the vasculature. So you would think that with a higher heart rate, you should ideally see a higher blood pressure. In decompensated shock, that's not true. You see a really high heart rate, but a, a, a really low blood pressure. So whatever's that's going on. That's the body on, being overwhelmed. Yeah, whatever's going on has got to be pretty serious, I suppose. Yeah, um, there's a whole bunch of ways to get there. Uh, you know, many ways to skin a cat. But at the end of the day, you want to avoid shock. You also want to avoid skinning cats, of course. Well, of course, they're <laughs> lovely creatures, and if you don't like cats, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but uh, no, like if you uh, if you can avoid shock, most of the times you can avoid death. Okay. Nice. Yeah, shock is what kills people. So, is compensated shock that initial sort of um, first step in the yes? The compensated. It's your body GD. trying to fix it. Okay, so it's you can never go to right it. to de- decompensated, uncompensated. I f- I'm sorry, I forgot what it, I was, mean, what it was. Even if the, even if you always start in compensated, whether that lasts long is dependent on the situation. I see. Uh, I mean, essentially, what's happening is your body tries to fix it, and when your body can't fix it anymore and it gets overwhelmed, that's when decompensated shock starts. So it depends on how quickly your body's going to get overwhelmed. You're missing all sure. four limbs and you're bleeding. Your body's going to be overwhelmed pretty quick, and you'll likely find that individual in decompensated shock right away. Yes. You know, it's just one of those things. But in terms of anaphylaxis, what's happening is fluid – pretty much the long and short of it is the fluid ends up where it doesn't belong, right? And that causes a distributive shock, uh, which, again, results in hypoperfusion. Hypoperfusion, whether that be the brain – any other organ doesn't matter. You have about two to three minutes before there is, uh, well, it's about uh, two minutes until there's damage. And then it's like three to four minutes until that damage is irreversible. Mm-hmm. On top of the damage that's already occurred. On, I mean, on top of yeah. you know, the fact that you might die. Yeah. But like, <laughs> aside from that, you know, so uh, shock is is a real deal. Like it's it's scary. Um, and it's the, it's the, oh shit, this person, this person's in shock. Like, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Like we got to fix this. Um, but the other thing that we're, that I I have yet to talk about yet is bronchoconstriction. Do you know what bronchoconstriction is? I'm, I'm guessing that it's the bronchial tubes in your, in your lungs becoming tight. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly right. That it happens in asthma, um, which is uh, well, it's really that's what asthma is. If you have that chronically, that's asthma pretty much. Uh, so, yeah, it's the constriction of bronchioles, um, which are the uh, smaller tubes in your lungs that move air. Well, they don't move air, but they are the pathways in which air moves. Sure. Yeah. Um. So air comes in to your mouth or your nose into your trachea, down your trachea, into your um, bronchi, which then get broken down into bronchioles. So, you know, it's just a smaller section. It's just like arteries, and then after arteries, you go to arterioles. You know, so that Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, 
but yeah, they constrict. And when they constrict, obviously you can move, there's less volume that you're able to move in and out. So when you have bronchoconstriction, it's really bad things can happen and, you know, it contributes to the downward spiral that exists when you go into shock. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the fun part. How do we treat it? So I'm sure you're familiar with EpiPens. Yes, I am familiar. Epinephrine yes. in, in a can. Yeah. <laughs> in one one hot needle. Like, yeah. It's just it's what we call an auto injector. Therefore, all, all you have to do is press it to your skin or press it to your muscle because uh, it provides an intramuscular injection. So the, the epi goes into your uh, muscle. And uh, what that does is it allows you to uh, not necessarily reverse the shock, but it buys you time. Did you know, do you know, yeah, let's put it this way. Do you know how many times does a person or like how often does a person need epinephrine? Is it a one-time thing or do you think it's multiple doses? In in what kind of situation are we talking about? Anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis. Um, yep. You know, it can't be as easy as once. That's that's my answer. Um, if it is, fantastic. <laughs> right. Well, that's one of those other misconceptions that people, you, you know, you hit you hit yourself with an EpiPen, you're good, you're fine, you're dandy. Don't need to worry about it. Ninety percent of the time, you need more than one dose. Now, uh, what about frequency? Uh, how do you govern the frequency of needing those? Sure, s- those injections. Five minutes ish. <laughs> I was thinking like an hour or two, uh, nope. five minutes. That's incredible. So time really is of the essence. Then yes, yeah. So what that does is what epinephrine does is when it hits or how EpiPens work is, you know, you provide an intramuscular injection. So you stab yourself with this uh, auto-injector. It provides you a specific dose of drug, which I believe is, um, for adults, it's 3 milligrams. No, sorry, it's 0.3 milligrams. So what that epinephrine is going to do is it does a couple different things. So the drug itself acts on alpha receptors as well as beta receptors. Alpha and beta receptors are just terminology for receptors in the heart and receptors in the lungs. Alpha in the heart, beta in the lungs. So um, alpha receptors, for the alpha receptors, it also contributes to the cardiovascular system as a whole, including arteries and veins and stuff like that. So epinephrine is going to constrict those blood vessels and it does the opposite in beta receptors. So it, it dilates. So that's going to constrict blood vessels and dilate bronchioles. Okay. Right? So that's doing two things. Sure. One, it's increasing hyper or it's increasing blood pressure, which reduces shock. Additionally, in a situation such as distributive shock or angioedema, when there's a bunch of fluid, how do you get the fluid out? You restrict the volume or the space that it can uh, obtain. So if you have swelling or edema and you use epinephrine, that's going to constrict the blood vessels, which reduces the angioedema because it diminishes the the 
total space that that fluid could obtain mm-hmm. or could accumulate in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I. So I might have gotten a little hung up on on one part there. Sure. Um. So in like like fluid mechanics, yeah. like you have your standard pipe that a fluid is rushing through, mm-hmm. um, and you know you start off with a diameter of like ten millimeters. Sure. And then at another end of the pipe, it's three. Yep. And and then the pipe continues with that diameter, and then it expands again to sort of compensate for that um, decrease in diameter. The fluid velocity increases. That, uh, but, and sort of like, um, that's not necessarily a problem in this instance. Right. So what we're really worried about is pressure. Mm-hmm. And although velocity has a lot to do with that, mm-hmm. um, we're more concerned about the volume. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah, it does. In the body. It does. Uh, when you talk about pressure, or sorry, velocity, um, so when you talk about velocity in the sense that uh, you're talking about, that is actually more of a problem when we start talking about um, like clots and stuff like that. Okay. Okay, because you have uh, fluid at a certain pressure at a specific velocity traveling through the blood, right? And it comes upon a restriction, right? Such as a clot. Mm. Or um, you can talk about it in terms of like plaques, like in your arteries and stuff like that. So, you know, that type of sudden constriction, you're going to start seeing uh, tissue damage because of that. I see. Change in velocity and stuff like that. I see. Okay. Um, and, and the pressures applied to the surrounding tissue is really the concern. Okay. So anyway, that's kind of, you know, anaphylaxis in a nutshell, huh? so to speak. Get it? Nut allergy. Sick. Anyway, um, <laughs> Let's get it. <laughs> so, Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So that's anaphylaxis in a nutshell. I mean, um, it's the immune system is terribly complex and it's so hard to like dive into all of it and help you understand everything like everything at, at the same time because to be quite honest i don't like i i have to do for this episode specifically i never took immunology uh so i know the surface level and uh in order to understand this i had to really refresh myself sure i i know anaphylaxis from the uh medicine side of things like how to treat it and what to look for, and I know why the signs and symptoms occur, but to understand the true chemical process is a little bit beyond what I really need to know in my position. So, sure. Um, but yeah, do you have any other lingering questions that we can talk about? Yes, yes, just one more. Uh, yeah, is lactose intolerance like technically a food allergy, or is that no. just like a misfiring? sort of enzymatic thing that happens yeah it's an enzymatic problem yeah Um, so your immune system is not involved in lactose allergies okay or sorry lactose intolerance now if you have a lactose allergy right then your immune system is going to be involved you're going to have those symptoms of you know rash uh or even you know possibly anaphylaxis Mm -hmm. the key is is it a ige mediated Immune response. The answer is no. Yeah, the answer is no. 
the answer so is therefore, no. lactose intolerance is not an allergy. How about that? Yeah. Shout out to all my lactose intolerance people out here. Yeah. So when I, so when I ask people, do you have any allergies? And they say, I'm lactose intolerant. I say, <laughs> okay, that's not an allergy. What allergy? Sit down. Do have? I have to tell you about this great podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Like. I can't, I mean, it's a common misconception. Everyone thinks that lactose intolerance is an allergy, and it is not. So, now you know. The more you know. That's what we're here for. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right, well, if you don't have any other questions, we'll wrap this up. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter at Basic Science Pod. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. A rating or review is always helpful. If you want to read a bit more about this topic, you can find it at basically-science.com. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.